Okay. Now I'm going to point out Danielle's note. If anyone is interested in opening their home for the end of the year Sunday School Fellowship event on May 17th, Lord willing, please contact Danielle Ferrari. Okay? So if you're willing to open your home for the Sunday School Fellowship, please contact Danielle Ferrari. Okay? Uh, it's about 80 people, I think. So you might want to consider that. Um, <clears throat> okay. So uh, several weeks ago, somebody, can y'all hear me back there? Okay. Somebody brought me this little cartoon, whoever you were. I still don't know who you were, but I didn't, I didn't overlook this. I'm bringing it up now. Here's what it says. It's a little... I don't know who this guy is, but he's one of those little cartoons, you know? Like Fox Trot. Fox Trot. Okay. Here's what it says. He's, he's got a football in his hand, and his buddy's there, and, and he says, Go deep! And then his buddy says, How can free will coexist with divine preordination? <laughs> <laughs> so then it shows him with his football, and he's scratching his chin. <laughs> And then he says, too deep. (laughs) So then his buddy says, if Batman died, would the Joker be happy? (laughs) So if you were around for all of our discussions last year in the class... They were related to, does free will coexist with divine preordination? And on that topic, and the reason why I brought that cartoon, is I've heard a, a few times from different people in passing as they speak an idea that I want to try to just talk about briefly. And, it, and this is what it is, and I, I'm sorry, I know we're in the midst of a study on the atonement, but I'm just kind of addressing something I think I need to address. It seems that there are some of us who think that having learned properly last year that salvation happens by divine election. In other words, God is the initiating party in salvation and chooses whom he will save. And um, that somehow because God is the one who chooses that we be saved, that somehow that nullifies the fact that we make a choice to be saved. And I just want to correct that, because that is not at all true. And I want to make sure you understand, I have never represented a doctrine like that. That what I believe about divine election and predestination and how that's worked out in time and space is, is really a simple matter when you consider it in light of everything we learned last year. And that is that divine election is God's choice to save people. But he does that through the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit in time and space. So that what he does is, through the agency of the Word and the Spirit, okay, He makes us willing to believe and therefore make a choice to believe. So I want to be sure that you understand this idea that just because God chooses people for salvation does not mean that people don't choose. People do, in fact, choose. Uh, I mean, this is so simple and plain. We all know it. We present the gospel message and we say to people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We confront them with a choice, right, about salvation. What's that choice, right? Well, either choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and make him your Lord and your master and your savior willingly, which assumes we do that by our will, fallen as it may be, not free as it may be. It's enslaved to sin, right? But in regeneration, God the Holy Spirit gives us the capacities to know and understand and accept the things of God and gives us faith. The gift of God is faith. And then we employ that faith by
by making a human willing choice. Does that make sense? Is it clear what I'm saying right now? Whether or not you're in the camp that understands and believes what I'm saying, or you're in the camp that thinks, no, people don't make a choice. Uh, Either way, I want to make sure it's clear what I'm saying. I'm saying people do make a willing choice, and that happens when they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. When they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they see, know, and understand the grace of God and salvation, and they employ the God-given faith that he gives them in regeneration. Okay? You with me? I got everybody thoroughly confused now? (laughs) Okay. All right. I just just had had to bring that up. Because I really, I actually had heard that many, many times in the course of the, the last year. Or just <clears throat> statements or comments in, in passing where it seems like people understand the doctrine to mean that people don't make a willing choice. And that is not at all true. It's just that people can't make a willing choice until the Holy Spirit gives them the capacity to do it. Okay? And that is what happens in regeneration. And if you want to explore that further or maybe you weren't here last year or whatever there's a link on my website on the theology button under the sovereignty section there's a link that says the sovereignty of God and salvation if you click on that it's got the whole the whole series of teachings maybe about 40 something pages going through all of those doctrines okay all right having said that let's pray God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for your glory and your power and your majesty. We thank you that you alone are God and that there is none like you, God. We praise you. We give praise to your name. You alone are worthy to be praised, God, and we praise you. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you, God. We thank you for the privilege of being saved from our sins by the precious blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, even for the faith that you give us. We thank you that we've been saved by grace through faith. And Lord, it's not of ourselves. It is your gift. Oh, God, we thank you for this gift. We glorify you and we praise you. Lord, I ask today as we look into these matters that are at hand, that you will open our eyes and help us to see clearly. And Lord, that you will encourage and strengthen our faith in all knowledge and real discernment. And God, that our love would abound more and more toward one another and toward you, God. Please do these things in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. So then, uh, last week... We ended our discussion about the sufficiency of the atonement. And then we moved into a section that we entitled the results and benefits of the atonement. And so now here we're talking about, okay, this atonement, which is the whole scope of Christ's saving work. We've been talking about defining it, looking at it, understanding what it is, understanding the how the Bible describes it as a sacrifice, as a substitute, that it's vicarious, and and, uh, um, more than that, that it's, it's a propitiation of the wrath of God, that God's wrath gets propitiated in the atonement, and that because of that, our guilt gets expiated, our guilt gets removed, that we get released from our sins, as it says in Revelations 1-5, and, and that... Uh, and that um, uh, we've been discussing this whole nature of what the atonement is and what it means and what it's done for us in regard to the sin problem, in regard to our relationship to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, coming to understand all these things about the atonement and the death of Christ and the problem of sin, do you understand how the false gospel that just says, you know, Jesus will fix your life, Jesus will solve all your problems, Jesus will give you joy. Jesus will give you peace. Jesus, you know, uh, will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. You see how all those things may be true about Christ? They sell the gospel short. 
But let me tell you, they don't just sell the gospel short. They remove the whole matter of the gospel. Because frankly, all those things that Christ does for us, those are just the results of what happens when the sin problem gets dealt with. Are you with me? But if, if our gospel doesn't deal with the sin problem, it's no gospel at all. I mean, Jesus could still be the Son of God and make us healthy, wealthy, and wise and never die on a cross if we weren't sinners. But we are sinners. And because we're sinners, we abide under the wrath of the Almighty God. And we're destined for destruction. Amen? That's why there's a holy cross on the hill called Calvary. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, had to die there to take away sins. Amen? That is the heart of the gospel message. If we don't deal with the sin problem in the gospel message, isn't anybody getting saved? You can't be saved if you don't come to a cognitive understanding that you've been separated from a holy God because of sin, that you abide under his wrath, and that he's made a provision for reconciliation through the blood of his son and through the blood of his cross. That's why when Paul comes preaching to the Corinthians, he says, I was determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Why, Paul? Why? Because that's the heart of the matter. And then he gets to the end of the book and he says, Now let me remind you of this gospel. That Jesus died, He was buried, and was raised on the third day, and was witnessed by over 500 of the brethren. Right? And so he reminds us again of the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus died. That's the gospel. Right? The atonement, that's the gospel. Holy God has been propitiated, right? Death and hell have been conquered, right? Because the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we're not talking here about healthy, wealthy, and wise. The wages of sin is death, Right? Eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's the heart of the matter. And this is the problem. Tell me how you can even consider a place, a church, if they don't even use the word sin in the course of their teaching. Joel Osteen. Okay? That's what he teaches. He teaches pastors this. You can't use offensive words and concepts in your preaching. Therefore, you can't use the word sin if you want people to be comfortable in your church. Which likewise means we've thrown the R word out, repentance. We're not calling anybody to repentance from sin, right? And... And, of course, the, the whole idea of hell isn't even on his theological map. Much less would he use it in the church service. So tell me what kind of converts you're winning to yourself if, if, if all your converts are coming and they're learning, Jesus is going to make you healthy, happy, and wise. And that's the content of the teaching. And God isn't a holy God in heaven. And God isn't offended by sin. I mean, if you're in the pulpit and you don't even mention the cross and the blood and the sacrifice, what gospel do you have? I mean, you're reading the book of Romans, right? I mean, you open the book of Romans. If you know, Romans, the technical discourse in the gospel in all the Bible, right? So you open up the book of Romans, first chapter, right? First chapter, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all men who suppress God through unrighteousness and unholiness, right? First thing Paul lays down, mankind is under the wrath of God because of sin and he's demanding that all men repent. Amen? Then he goes in for several chapters defining what this is all about. He gets to chapter 3 and he says, listen, 
The whole world is held accountable before God because through the law we all have become conscious that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And so for three chapters, Paul establishes the sin problem. Right? Chapter 2 is a discussion that, look, you Jews who think you're moral, you think you're good, he says you're all under sin just like the Gentile is. That's his point in chapter 2. Right? And of course, you realize chapter 1 is a huge, massive list of sins that Paul is condemning and saying, this is why the wrath of God is being revealed. And then he talks about the downward progression of sin, right? And how it ultimately winds up in sexual immorality of the most degrading kinds. It's a downward spiral, sin is, right? And then he says, all of those who practice these things are underneath the wrath of God. And they're storing up wrath, he says in chapter 2, verse 5. They're storing up wrath for the day of God's righteous judgment. Right? And then he goes on. And you Jews who are standing in judgment of these Gentiles and what they're doing, he says, you practice the same things. He tells them. Right? Just, you know, like Jesus said. If you look at a woman and you, you uh, lust after her, you're guilty of committing adultery in your heart. Your heart's unclean, right? And so, Jesus, so, so Paul points out there in Romans chapter 2 that the Jew alike, just like the Gentile, are all under sin and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And there isn't anybody who doesn't sin. And nobody is righteous before God. Yet he says in chapter 3 verse 19, the whole world is held accountable before God. And, you know, this is what he establishes to give us the good news of Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and following, which is what? The atonement. Right? Let's look there. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and following. How would we even have this gospel if we didn't understand sin? If we didn't understand the righteous judgment of God? If we didn't understand the holy wrath of God towards sin. There he says, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Right? In His blood, through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. You see... The gospel is all about the righteousness of God and the problem that's been created because of sin. And God's provision for that sin problem with a propitiation who is Jesus the Lamb who died because of sin, who took my sins and your sins upon His body on the tree and He was killed, crucified, and put to death because of me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You say, well, why are you picking on Joel Osteen? Well, the only reason I'm picking on Joel Osteen is because he's a representative of this modern evangelical easy believism thing that, that you know, Jesus is neat, let's eat. You understand what I'm saying? And I, I just use that comment because that's the attitude. You know, when you have a real low view of God and you have a low view of Scripture, you have a real low view of sin. And life is just kind of a postmodern bowl of jello, and everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. Okay? But that's not how it is in God's eyes. Let me tell you, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And God has given us severe and stern warnings that we had better repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and flee from the coming wrath. Amen? Family. <laughs> That's the heart of the Christian faith. That's the whole reason there is a Savior. That's the whole... Man has to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God! If he's not saved from God, God will destroy him! When's the last time you heard that? From the popular American evangelical pulpits. That God is going to destroy sinners. 
including every single sinner who does not repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand? That's our gospel. That's our Christian faith. That's what the, that's what the church has been contending for down through the ages of church history. Are you with me? Because that's the apostles' doctrine that they learned from the Lord himself. And that's the very gospel that the Old Testament bore witness to. You see, all through the history of redemption, God has been warning. God has been saying he's going to provide for those who fear him and trust him and love him and obey him and walk in all of his ways. Amen? Well, so, I really do mean to pick on Joel. <laughs> but just in the sense that he's representative of, of, of what has happened in watering down the gospel so that it's, it is absolutely ridiculous. You know what that means, right? Worthy of ridicule. Okay, so that's what I'm doing. I'm ridiculing him. And I'm ridiculing his message. Okay? And I do believe that there's hope for him. You know? <laughs> Quite frankly, if he'll get his nose in the Bible and he'll repent, to use the R word, of his sin, to use the S word. Otherwise, he might find himself in hell, to use the H-E double hockey sticks word. (laughs) Are you with me? So, yes. Sure it is. I guess if you feel a personal conviction about it, write him a letter, send him an email, go knock on his door. Oh no! Oh no! No no! See, when you have enough money, you can build a nice big insulating pad all the way around you. Why you can be? Other gray-haired preachers in white suits who have 14 homes and Learjets and all kinds of big fancy things. And who are you going to give an account to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, um, yeah, I think I think not only should we hold them accountable, but I guarantee you, men are. I, I personally know of contact from other preachers with him specifically, warning him against his false teaching. And the kind of teaching he does is false teaching. It's unorthodox. It's non, it, it is over essential matters. Okay? I mean, if you don't get the fact that what we're talking about here, this atonement thing and this propitiation and this wrath of God and the blood of his cross and all that, if you don't understand that's the heart of the Christian faith, you need to listen more closely. This is the heart of the Christian faith. And if you remove all those things from the gospel message, you are a heretic in the worst form. Okay, and 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 I do I believe he sincerely means to be a heretic? Well, I don't know his heart. Okay, it's my thought that he he's doing what he's doing out of ignorance. But that's not like all false teachers. Many false teachers. Um, this is just my opinion. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Uh, many false teachers know exactly what they're doing, and and it, it's it's uh, it's my hope that God is opening his eyes, maybe to what's happening but uh you know i mean here here you know here's how he represents the church to america he gets on larry king live and larry says well tell us about the mormons right you know can a mormon be saved you know and 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 you know here's what america's pastor says well you know i'll leave all that theological stuff to the scholars So it's like, you know, what gospel are you even preaching? If there's no distinction between you and the Mormon gospel, then you're, you might as well be in their pale. You understand what I'm saying? So, it, it, you know, it's, um, well, it's rather evident, is it not? As we learn of these things. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny that you omit these things from your ministry and it's not so easy to see. It's one thing if I come right out and blatantly teach some false doctrines. Another thing entirely if I just remove all the essential guts of the faith. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Um, Galatians 1 pretty well shows you here then, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you 
than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. And that curse there is the divine word, mm -hmm. divine curse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me also say this. Let me say this for your own personal edification. If, if the lines of discernment are still cloudy for you so that you can't look at a teacher like him and, and see clearly the false doctrine that's coming forth, you really are in a bad place. And you need to learn about the Christian faith. Okay? I, I'm assuming that this stuff would be really clear to you. And this is the kind of thing, frankly, that needs to be said in our churches so that we understand and we grow in the ability to discern so we don't get led astray by false teachers. So the constant warning in the New Testament from the apostles. Men will rise up from your own number and draw away disciples after themselves. Right? People will, in the last days, heap to themselves teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. Right? But you, instead, preach the word. Convince, reprove, and exhort with great patience, he says, and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Right? And, and family, that time has been upon us for many centuries. And, and uh, these things are important. Yes, ma'am. I believe that to be true. I, I believe that to be true, that they are, they are calling people to accountability, them uh, along with a whole host of others, you know. So um, it's not our common practice to name false teachers around here, but the reason I do it is to, to show that he's representative of a, of a very popular false gospel. And, you know, when you're witnessing to a people in America, you need to understand the representation of Christianity that they've had. Okay, and you need to understand why this kind of intense training about the cross of Christ is such a benefit for your own personal evangelistic ministry. Because you can take off and begin to describe to them the whole issue of the sin problem. You can explain it to them. I mean, you know, it, it, it resolves every problem in their life. And ultimately, if they'll come to Christ, they will be healthy, happy, and wise. Right? Are you with me? See, that's part of the gospel. The gospel holds out all the promises of God to them who believe. Right? But that is fundamentally, first and foremost, by resolving the sin issue. Because as long as you're under the wrath of God, let me tell you something. Happiness isn't even... I mean, it's just you may have the temporary pleasures of sin, but that's it. Life is but a vapor, and then it's over. And eternity is a long, long, long time. And let me tell you, hell is really, really hot. I tell you, it's a sobering thought. It sobers me every day of my life. Okay, so then, the results and benefits of the atonement. So last week, we, we ended by talking about common grace. Now, remember that common grace is, is the grace or favor that God dispenses to unbelieving sinners who do not come to faith in Christ and be saved. So tell, tell, tell me, why would God endure with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction in the language of Romans 9.22? Why would he do that? Let's turn there. You were in your Romans already, right? Take a right turn. Chapter 9, verse 22. This is a great scripture to illustrate this idea of common grace. There it says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So see, Paul's asking a question. Why would God do a thing like that? Why, why would He take a bunch of rebels who are shaking their fist in his face and completely ignoring him, even though he gives them their life and breath and everything they have on a daily basis. Why would he endure with them with much patience? Right? And then he answers his question in verse 23 and 24. He says, he did it 
so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So the answer to the question, why would God endure with much patience vessels of wrath? Why would he do that? So that he can manifest his mercy, right? To vessels of mercy, whom he prepared for glory, even us. The us, right? The Roman Christians. And to all the Christians that Paul is writing, right? And, and the point is, is that, so God deals with mankind in common grace because of the cross and because he has a plan of redemption that he's working out and because he has a goal that he's achieving throughout the ages of human history. Okay? That's why he endures with sinners. That's why he lets pedophiles and murderers and people like Hitler live another day. You know, this deals with some fundamental problems of theology, doesn't it? That's, that's why God endures with much patience vessels of wrath. You know, you wonder why God allows evil in the world. Okay? Well, because he has a higher purpose than just restraining evil. Are you going to comment? Yeah. Uh, for a stumbling block for some, is, is does God really create people to damn to hell? Uh, mm-hmm. And if that's true, then you know, does he ever give them a chance mm-hmm. to redeem <clears throat> So is that a question or a comment? It's both. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would commend you to our series last year. That, that doctrine is called reprobation. The idea of reprobation, what does it mean? It's dealt with very well in Grudem's theology, I think. But then also, it's, it's there on my website on that theology button, sovereignty section, the link on uh, the, the uh, sovereignty of God and salvation, specifically under the doctrine of election. The lower section of that has a whole thing on reprobation, which answers those questions. Um. So you have this whole idea, though. I'm, I'm telling you that the very reason that God allows sinners to live. See, we need this perspective of God. We need to understand God is in heaven. He's ruling providentially over the kingdoms of the world. And there are rebels running all over the face of his earth. You understand? And God isn't just winking at that. You see, people regard the, the patience of God in, in a very disrespectful way. Okay? The patience of God, family, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is God allowing time for his church to be called out of darkness and come to him and be saved. Okay? The rest of the creation, the rest of the creation is going to perish and be destroyed. And the only thing that matters in the ultimate sense is a new creation. God has a new creation. God had an old creation. Okay? That creation by the willful sin and responsibility of man was plunged into decay and death and darkness and is in a downward spiral of de- destruction and is going to come to its end. Including the whole physical creation. God is going to destroy it by fire. And what will be left is the vessels of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. Even us whom he also called. Okay? And and so here's this whole thing. So what happens to the world? Why does God allow evil in the world? Well, you have the answer to that question in our discussion this morning. Why does God allow evil in the world? Because he has a higher purpose which he seeks to achieve through the agency of the creation he's made. What is that? Salvation. Salvation. And that's the message that he's given us, the church. It's called the gospel. And through the agency of the gospel, listen, people are saved. People are saved from what? From the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God to eternal life. Are you with me? Boil it down to brass tacks. That's what it looks like. Okay? 
God is in control. He is bringing His world to an end which He has planned for it. And it's coming about soon and very soon. Amen? The glorious thing is we get to be partakers in the plan. Amen? I I don't mean that arrogantly at all. Really, I don't. I'm extremely humbled by the fact that God would save me. Why would God save me? I am a wretched, wicked sinner. And even after I've been saved and dwell with the Holy Spirit, I constantly struggle with sin against my Lord, whom I love. (laughs) Are you with me? And that's why we call it grace. It's unmerited favor. And why, why would God save me? All I can say is, praise his holy name. He saved me in spite of me. Amen? Glorious. Glorious reality. And then, who am I to stand in judgment over what God is doing? What am I going to do? You know, God, you shouldn't make your world like that. That just doesn't seem right to me. kind of like you know job in all of his suffering you know he lost his family his kids to a devastating tornado lost his kids his whole family and he had all of his riches carried off and you know, here's this rich man glorious family much feasting right you know one day pow man destruction sweeps through his life so that he's left sitting with boils and sickness, right? And his wife comes and says, curse God and die, Job. You know, Job is just a picture of the ultimate in human suffering. That's what he is. Yet triumphant faith. And Job says, take it all from me. Even if he slays me, yet will I praise him. And Job's life is just, is just a, a story of triumphant faith in the face of suffering. Right? And um, it's interesting, God shows up to talk to Job. Job's pretty tired of suffering by now. He's got a few complaints. And God says to Job, Let me tell you something, Bub. That's what he says. He says, Stand up and I'm going to talk to you like a man. That's what God says to Job. Right? And here's what God says. Where were you when I hung the earth in the balance? Where were you when I created the morning? Have you ever commanded the morning so that the sun should shine? You with me? And, and here's what God's saying. I'm free to do whatever I will. That's what God is saying. I'm free to do whatever I will. Your part is to worship me, Job. And that's what Job did. Job did worship God. And you know what? God fulfilled his hope and his promise. Right? And, and if you will, Job is a picture of, of our human suffering and the, and, the, and, the, and the triumph of faith in the midst of it. And let me tell you something. If you don't understand it, so much so that you want to cast judgment over what God has done, I'm telling you, it's a sinful attitude and you need to repent. And, and I would suggest that you study more and learn more, and come to understand what God does is right. It's altogether good. It's altogether righteous. God never does anything that's unjust. The thought is unthinkable that God would do something that's unjust. If God does anything that's unjust, he's not God. And that this is who he has revealed himself to be. This is the plan he has revealed to us. You know, I don't always like the facets. I was standing in my shower this morning complaining to God about the things I don't understand and the things I don't like about the world. And, 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 and I've already been reproved by God in that area. So for me, it was just a gentle reminder from the Holy Spirit. Son, you don't know about the heavenly wonders that you speak of. Close your mouth. Close your mouth and rejoice in me. Dig a little deeper. Spend a little more time on your knees, son. That's what God's saying to me. Amen? Amen? Okay. I'm assuming I'm saying words that are benefiting somebody. I'm just out there rambling this morning. God, help me. Okay, so, in contrast to common grace, 
The believer in Christ receives eternal blessing from God, which is infinite and inexhaustible. So here we're, what we're saying with common grace, God's bearing with sinners and letting them live another day and letting them go through the course of their life. And they're never thankful for what he does. And, and, and they just, just ignore him. They write him out of their history books. They do everything they can to eradicate God from their life. Yet he is gracious in his mercy with much patience he bears with them and cares for them and sends rain on their crops and heals their body when they're sick and he does manifold mercies for them amen but that's just in sustaining their life listen in contrast to that we have special grace okay we have special grace because we have come to trust in the lord jesus christ and the sin problem has been dealt with are you with me and so what we're saying here is the result of that, the result of that special grace is an eternal blessing from God which is infinite and inexhaustible. Okay, here's what I'm saying. The blessing is infinite. It cannot be exhausted. Okay, and I'm going to explain to you from the scripture how that is true. In Christ, believers are showered with all of the blessings of God, and he now views them only with favor. In this, he has made countless promises for provision and care, love and blessing. See, God has made promises to us who fear him and who love him and who walk in all his ways and who acknowledge his son and who believe in his son and who trust in his son. He's made promises, okay? How many promises? Well, listen to what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For as many as may be the promises of God, that means all of them, however many there are, he says, in him, in Christ, they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So this is where we say all the promises where God is promised to make us healthy and happy and wise. And if, and if we're not healthy and happy and wise and we face great suffering, he has said, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall fear no evil for I shall be with you and I shall walk with you and I shall comfort you. Amen? And even though the waves in the foaming sea and the mountains be removed, right? The Lord is a very present help in time of trouble. Be still and know that I am God. I'm in control. You look to me, God says. Amen? Because I promise to care for you and to see you through to the end. And what's in the end? Glory is in the end. Fulfillment. Eternal bliss. This is but a light and momentary affliction, the scripture says. But it's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs our suffering. Right? Romans 8.17 I consider that our present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen? Amen? Mm -hmm. And so we have these kinds of promises from God and here the scripture says that those promises, all of them, as many as there may be, in Christ they're yes, they're ours. We possess them. We can lean on the promises of God. We can rely on the promises of God. Amen? These are results and benefits of the atonement. These were purchased for us. They are things that God has promised to us who find refuge in Jesus. Amen? The scripture plainly declares that God will cause all things to work together, including every single thing, whether good or bad, for the good, for those who love him. That's what the scripture says. All things. Now, how many things is all things? Right? God, this is what God promises. God promises to work everything in your life for your good. Glorious promise. So what does it mean? It means no matter what I face, God's going to work it for my good. Because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. Because he foreknew me and he predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. Amen? Amen? It's God's work. I have God's favor because God chose to, to give me favor. In his grace, he said, I'm going to set my love on him. He's going to be the object of my mercy. He's going to be the object of my blessing. 
I'm going to call him my son, adopt him into my family. And that's what the, that's how the Bible ends, right? Yeah. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no longer any mourning or dying or crying or pain, right? And they shall be my sons and daughters and I shall be their God. That's how, the, that's how it ends. Amen? Glorious. Sean. Absolutely glorious. Yes, sir. That's why uh, that so far surpasses what you're saying about Joel Osteen and, you know, his his whole health and wealth and, you know, the, the ones I've watched of him, the one that really stuck out, you know, you get the best parking space. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that, you know, that's his gospel. You get a good parking space at the store. You know, how much, how much more... Mm-hmm. Does the real gospel, you know, blow away? Absolutely, this kind of stuff. It's know? transcendent, is yeah. it not? Yeah. The promise of blessing that God gives to us in the atonement is transcending earth. That's why the Bible says, "Don't fix your mind on earthly things, but on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God." Set your minds on heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth. That's what He says. Not on parking spaces. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. Yep. Right? In fact, God will in Christ spend the endless ages. Get this. God will in Christ spend the endless ages showing believers the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward them. This is what Ephesians 2 says. It says, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, you understand that eternal life is what we possess in Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question. Now, eternal is a word that kind of throws us for a loop, right? But it's a reference to time, isn't it? So when we think about eternal, what do we think about? Without end. Or the idea of forever and ever and ever, as it says in Ephesians, forever and ever, world without end, right? In other words, it's going to go on forever and ever. So in reference to time, eternal is forever, right? Forever in the future and forever in the past. That's the idea of timelessness or eternality, right? And, and so here's what the scripture is saying in regard to God. Listen, God showing the surpassing riches of his kindness in, in uh, grace. The surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. Here's what it says. In the ages to come. That word ages is the Greek eonion. It's the plural of eons. Okay? The plural of eons. The only English word we have to translate that is ages. Okay, an age is an eon. You know, it's a, a long period of time. But this is plural ages. You understand? It's, it, it effectively means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Okay? That's what it means. It's age upon age in the Greek. But what's going on there? <laughs> it says here that God is showing, showing, displaying, what? The surpassing, not not just, you know, not just good parking lot, good parking places. <laughs> We're talking about the surpassing riches of God's grace. What is that? Are you with me? I would submit to you, you don't know the first part of it. You can't even possibly comprehend what that means. But let me tell you, I know it's something good. Amen? Are you with me? The surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. God is showing forever and ever and ever the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness, showering us with kindness throughout the eons of eternity. God, who created us with the tremendous capacity to enjoy things and, and, and the tremendous capacity to worship things and to be fulfilled by things, by Him, by emotions, by whatever he, uh, we have that, that, that drives us and makes us happy and fulfilled. God's the one that created that capacity. He's the one that's going to fill it for the coming ages, forever and ever. And this is the language of Scripture talking about this blessing that lives that, that is ours. It's an abiding possession. It's an inheritance, Paul says. 
the inheritance of glory in the saints in Christ Jesus. What in the world is that? Here's what it is. God showing the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness to us, world without end. It's transcendent, family. It's like you run out of words to even try to think about describing it. Are you with me? It doesn't end. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years ain't a drop in the bucket to this glory that shall be revealed to us. Amen? Awesome. Just absolutely awesome. This is ours through the precious blood of Jesus. This is ours through the precious blood of Jesus. Think about it. Your life. Here's a little diagram that, that won't do it justice. There's your life and here's time going on forever. Right? There's 80 years right there. Right? And guess what? This is a poor illustration. (laughs) If I could take that line and walk to Alaska, that would be a poor illustration. Are you with me? Because let me tell you, life is nothing but a vapor. Look, look, my 41 years, man, gone like that. Nothing, blink of an eye. This is forever and ever and ever and ever. Surpassing riches. Surpassing glory. Surpassing kindness from the holy, blessed, happy God. Are you with me? In a place where there's no sin. Sin has been removed. And so all of our thoughts are always pure. They're always lovely. They're always noble. We're not plagued by sin. Are you with me? I'm telling you, this is, this is the most glorious thing we could possibly imagine. Because Jesus is there. Amen? I mean, he's the object of it all. Blessed are the pure in heart, says, for they shall see God. That's what Job said. I'm in this dark day. He says, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he shall stand on the earth and I shall see him in my flesh. Amen? Glorious. Glorious reality. (laughs) How could one describe? Well, this is because we have been fully reconciled to God in Christ and now rest in his favor and presence to bless. In this favor, God is said to Freely give us all things. He says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here's the reasoning. Paul says, if he's going to give his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, if God's going to give him to be sacrificed, does God have a greater treasure than himself? And of course, the answer is no. If he's willing to pay the highest price to redeem us, won't he freely give us everything? He will. You know what? We don't know it. We don't realize what this is. We do not realize what we possess in Christ. We have cause for hope beyond our wildest imagination. I tell you, it's amazing if God will give us the most valuable thing in order to bring us into this heavenly bliss, what must that heavenly bliss be like? The sufficiency of this blessing of God toward believers is complete so that he promises to meet all of our needs in this life. And so, um, you know, the scripture clearly says God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Bible says God will meet all your needs. You ever tried him? Of course, we have a hard time in this affluent society we live in distinguishing between needs and wants, don't we? Right? Paul said we had a little food, we had a little clothing, a little shelter, and we'll be content with that. Right? But beside the fact, God super aboundingly treats us like kings and princes and princesses. Amen? I don't know about you, but that's what my life looks like. I mean, the way God treats me is is unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. 
not not to mention the glorious fact that the Holy Spirit's come to live inside me. I partake of the very nature of God. God's joy lives in my heart. His peace, His love. I have hope that abounds. Kill me. Go ahead, kill me. I'm going to pass into glory. Are you with me? I mean, it's just, it's just ineffable. You know what that means, right? There's no words to describe. Second Peter one says, "His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness." Second Corinthians nine eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Scripture says God will, has all grace abounding to you for everything. Right? Paul's got the thorn in the flesh. Right? Whatever the thorn is. He prays to God. Oh God, take this thing away from me, God. Right? Wonder what Joel would do with that. <laughs> right? Since it's always God's will to heal and the Apostle Paul can't even heal himself. Right? But he's praying, God, God, help me, God, God, remove this thorn from me, right? And you know what God says? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. If you could stand up here and look at your life from where I'm sitting, Paul, you'd see the thorn is very necessary. Maybe you all start thanking me for the thorn, Paul. Right? The believer is rich in every way. We, having been made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, possess all things so that we could not be richer. Hear what I'm telling you, the Bible says. We could not be richer. We could not be richer. Okay? Listen to how the Bible describes the possessions that we have as children of God. It says there that Jesus, for you know that, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was rich? What's that, Paul? Somebody tell me. Jesus was rich? Up in heaven. He's the eternal Son of God. He lives in glory. He's been there forever. Amen? He was rich. Yet he became poor. He became one of us. Poor pitiful creatures, right? Except he's a glorious creature. He's not a pitiful creature. <laughs> he's the only one. He's the only one. But <clears throat> but he became poor, what? That through his poverty you might become rich. What kind of rich? What, what is this, some kind of faith doctrine? I can have a Cadillac or a Mercedes or a big white house on the hill? No, 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 no. That's child's play. <laughs> That's not the kind of riches the Bible says. Although you do own the cattle on a thousand hills because you're a joint heir with Christ. It's all yours. Listen to how the Bible describes it. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and following. So then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you. Now how many things belong to you? All things belong to you. Right? Why? Because all things belong to Jesus. And you're a co-heir with him. You with me? What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean all things are ours? Well, let me explain, family. Whether Paul or Apollo or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Now, tell me you could be richer. So that's what I'm saying. We don't know what we possess. Right? Because we're still here in time and space, struggling with sin, living in a fallen world, and we we're constantly keep losing hope. <laughs> right? The Bible couldn't make more grand promises to us than it has. God, God could not promise to us a greater measure of glory than he has. He is our exceeding great reward. We possess him. We're in Christ, and Christ is in us. Are you with me? This is a glorious reality. This is a very spiritual thing. It's, you know, I'm not talking about Mercedes. You know, those are old rusted pennies with the stuff I'm talking about. Are you with me? I wish there was a way to describe it. Maybe I'll think for many days about how to do that. Right? 
We better end there. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, I, I pray that we would examine these scriptures that are set before us. And we would consider, God, the promises that you have made to us. I pray that they would be an encouragement to us to endure even our darkest days of suffering, God. Lord, may you be our treasure when things are going well and when things are going very poorly, God. May you be our treasure. May we be thankful, God, in every circumstance. Oh, Lord, if it's a sunny day or a gloomy day. God, if we have much abundance of things. Or, Lord, if we're struggling and hardly have what we need. May we be content that we have you, God. May we see you for the treasure that you are. May we long and pant and thirst, God, for the living God. Lord, may you be our sufficiency. May you be our hope and our shelter. God, may you be our living water and our bread of life. Oh, Lord, open our eyes to see this truth, I pray. And I pray for increasing desire in our hearts, Lord, to love you and to serve you and to relate to you, God, and to know you. God, strengthen us against sin and temptation. And live in us, I pray, with all of your glory. Help us, God, for each one of us here in the the midst of the struggle that we're in. Lord, whatever's keeping us from a deeper level of communion with you, God. Oh, God, bring it to light, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.